listening to Thunder Radio, the podcast of the Manitoba First Nations Education Resource Centre. Welcome to Thunder Radio. I'm your host, Kim Kakiganek. On May 6th to 8th, we had the great pleasure of hosting our annual Lighting the Fire Education Conference. Every year we invite educators from across the country to come together in Winnipeg and share with each other about First Nations education. This year it was held in conjunction with the Western Canada First Nations Administrators Education Conference. During the conference, I was able to wander around and speak to many people about a wide variety of things, and that's what this podcast is all about. To give you a snapshot of the conference, the workshops, presentations, and the people who attended. So I hope you enjoy. The grand entry is about to begin, and it is to honor our veterans, elders, you as educators, and ladies and gentlemen. staffs brought in today. The one Eagle staff from the Assembly Manitoba Chiefs has long been with the Assembly Manitoba Chiefs and certainly represents the leadership of our province and the great leadership and leaders that paved the way for us and have had many sacrifices doing, doing so. The other Eagle staff brought in by our Executive Director, Lauren Keeper, is the Eagle staff of the Western Canadian First Nation Education Administration's Conference. I got a chance to talk to so many interesting people, both presenters and attendees. Tell me one thing you're looking forward to about the conference. Well, to meet all the teachers that we visit in the schools, that will be a great thing. So to see them and and to make sure that they go back with uh, lots of uh, experiences, lots of ideas, new ideas to apply to their kids. My name is Doug Flitt from St. Teresa Point First Nation. And is this your first time attending the conference or have you been here before? I've been here many times. Many times. Okay, so how, how many? I, I started teaching in 1975. And I've been here quite a few times with uh, lighting the fire as given the opportunity by our First Nation people if, if they give us a chance to to update our our knowledge which is good for our students and we take those back to the community as much as we can. I love working with kids. I'm Jason Pass. I'm teaching at Mikasu School in Cross Lake. Oh, Cross Lake. Okay, and if you wouldn't mind telling me one thing about the conference you're looking forward to or something, a workshop you're going to attend or something like that. That's what I've mapped out my uh, my time for looking to... Uh, I'll probably be teaching social studies next year, so I'm kind of start to gear up for that. Uh, my name is Douglas Lang, and I, I teach grade 8 in Nelson House, Manitoba. And you just put... Food in, food in your mouth. <laughs> she, I can speak for her. She is Stacy Maitland, also from Nelson House. She teaches high school social studies. 
Oh, great. And can you tell me maybe one thing you're looking forward to about the conference? Um, I'm looking forward to our own presentation, and I hope we don't screw it up. <laughs> oh, which, which one is yours? We are presenting on a course that Stacy and I um, two years ago created and got approved through the Ministry of Education. It deals with the history of medicine with a huge component of First Nations medicine included in it. Steve Phillips from Moncton, New Brunswick, and um, presently teaching at Split Lake in uh, Chief Sam Cook School, the high school there. And what brought you all the way to Manitoba from New Brunswick? Um, the opportunities to teach in a First Nations culture, um, just to understand the different, the mosaic of Canada and from the perspective of First Nations. And uh, I, I've got to tell you, I think I'm getting more of an education myself than the students that I have. It's a wonderful experience. How long have you been there in Split Lake? Actually, just started in Split Lake in September of uh, 2014 and uh, hope to be there for many years to come. Then it was time for the opening ceremonies. We were very lucky to have Grand Chief Nipanak and Grand Chief Harper present, as well as other dignitaries and over 900 attendees from all across Canada. We really honored to be here today this morning. I, as I mentioned, I acknowledge our, our father, God for the beautiful day that's given to us today and for us to be here in, in the opening and, and the beautiful drum songs that were laid out today this morning to for our for a clear path towards a great day but a couple of things I want to acknowledge the uh, the guests that are here from out of province and I want to acknowledge Treaty 1 territory for allowing us to dwell in their treaty treaty lands to join us here today is uh, a momentous occasion because it reflects our persistence and our diligence in moving forward collectively towards renewing the opportunities for our young people through education. As the, uh, as the lead at the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, I've done my part, I think, over the years to make sure that that opportunity for education, the opportunity for you to continue doing the work you do in our communities is maintained despite political efforts to take away the inherent rights of our communities, the inherent rights of our families to guide the jurisdiction of treaty and education in our communities. The workshops got underway and everything from robotics in the classroom to curriculum through culture was covered. And now you're about to hear some snippets from a few different workshops and these feature both live presenters and one video presentation. And then you could also loop that. So it's going to go right, go forward, go right, go forward, and that will be working. These are very simple programs, and the reason he started the uh, computer now is we're going to go more complex ones. So, Miwet, for being here, I'd like to introduce Audrey um, Blackbird. She is uh, currently principal of Kisikonian School. She has been in this position since October 2012. In May to, uh, 2014, meetings and discussions were held on their languages and how the school needed a language program. Since then, an Ojibwe language program has been developed for the students in Kisco and in school. The Medicine Wheel teachings help us to understand the interconnectedness of all people and all cultures. Within those teachings, Every person has an equal place. All are worthy of respect and consideration. In this episode, we'll shed some light on a segment of our community 
whose place is uncertain and whose role has perhaps been forgotten. They call themselves two-spirited people. Our story begins in northern Manitoba. To, uh, again, the percent of the people that are uh, mentioned that the young population among Aboriginal communities is increasing, 28% of the population is under age 14. And this is the age where the children will go to school. And it's important for us to see how housing affects health, how health affects the education. So there's a very large uh, increase and also percentage of the population that are under the age of 14. The sad story is that, and looking at Manitoba, 70% of the Aboriginal children live in poverty compared to the non-Aboriginal, and this is a 60% in Manitoba, just as a little bit higher in Saskatchewan. So how does health affect education? And this is of interest to many of you. On day two of the conference, we had the great privilege of hearing from some bright young students, 14-year-old Sparrow Kennedy and 18-year-old Tori Ross. They were the winners of the 2015 Lighting the Fire Student Essay Contest. Both wrote essays about how the eagle represents leadership. And you are about to hear a couple minutes from each of their presentations. If you want to make better choices for yourself and those around you or in your community, you have to be fearless. Always stand behind your decision. Fearing the consequences of your decision won't help, and a strong leader knows that. An eagle will always stand its ground when hunting for prey, no matter the size. Even when fighting for its territory, an eagle will never back down from a fight. Successful leaders are fearless because they face the problem head on, just like an eagle. In life, challenges are like a storm. The atmosphere changes dramatically and there are usually strong winds to knock us down. There can be a lot of rain, snow, or lightning to remind us how hard life can be waiting for the storm to pass. Eagles take advantage of storms while other birds fly away and take cover. An eagle will fly to greater heights during a storm. Just like an eagle, leaders go through many challenges to achieve what they want. A leader and an eagle must go to greater heights to get through the hard times. Every great leader knows not to give in so quickly. Being a tenacious leader is a great quality that an eagle possesses and a leader can have. Eagles do get older and physically weak because of their worn out feathers. The worn out feathers are no longer useful to the eagle because they slow it down. The eagle rips off its own feathers and knocks off its own beak by banging against rocks. The eagle takes time in rejuvenating itself to live longer. Like the eagle, a great leader to, has to take a step back, take a few deep breaths, and review life. Checking yourself to see if you are still capable of moving forward as a leader is very important. A good leader is someone who takes care of the people and who is willing to serve more than to be served. He listens to his people and speaks for them. He's well loved, he's well loved, respected, and honored, just like an eagle who has a authority over the convocation. A good leader also educates his people. He recognizes that education is important to have a healthy community. He has the skill to lead his people to their full potentials. He has the keen eyes of an eagle that can see hope beyond those who are intoxicated. He has those ears who can hear the cries of every baby and child under the care of CFS. 
He has the heart to feel the pain of his people and the backbone to lead them out of the situation. There is indeed a great demand for good and strong leadership, especially in education. Our leaders are aware of these problems that are confronting our people. Who hasn't encountered, encountered a dysfunctional family because of substance abuse? Who has not heard of those cries from kids who long for their parents? Love and care. Who has not heard of, the, heard of those missing abor aboriginal women who might have to keep their silence in the grave? Who has not felt the stigma of racism, labeling, and discrimination? Who could ignore these crimes of utmost gravity? The problems are right before us. Even if life is hard, we can overcome. The school is a place where future community leaders meet, then it is an ideal place to nurture and train leaders. If the school fails, the community fails as well. If we don't care, then who will? I had the chance to chat briefly with Sparrow and his family after his presentation. I'm, I'm, my name is Sparrow and I'm from Blood Rain. Okay, and were you nervous up there presenting? Yes, I was pretty nervous. Have you ever done anything like that before? Um, no, my first time. And tell me again what grade you're in? I'm in grade nine. Yeah, I'm proud of my grandson. I'm just keeping my tears <laughs> to myself. <laughs> yeah. That's so wonderful. Yeah, it was. he did such a good job, and he said he's never done anything like that before. Yeah, it's the first time for everything for him, I guess, and, you know, and it, we're all excited for him, and, you know, we'll just see what the future brings him, and we're going to encourage him, push him to go to school. And now, during the conference, Wandering the Trade Show was also a highlight. There were many different organizations and businesses there focused on First Nations issues and education, plus many artisans and crafters selling their beautiful wares. Here with Liz from Jump Math, and how's the day going so far? Oh, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. It's just great to meet up with so many people that are here returning from communities that I've worked in with Jump Math. So it's awesome. It's like a family reunion. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's from the t getting feedback from the teachers as to how they're doing and what's going well, what's going well in the math program. So it's just delightful. Thank you. Let me ask you how the day has been going. How's the MF Merck Publishing table doing? Uh, it's been going really well so far today. Um, lots of people are interested, especially in the language books, uh, especially teachers who are teaching their kids either Ojibwe or Cree in the classroom. Um, particularly the Ojibwe teachings book, uh, is, my favorite part of that is that it offers the word search puzzles in it as well. Um, so that just provides an extra fun game for the kids that they can photocopy and then have their kids play in the classroom. And I have found, hello, one of the students that is going to the Canada-wide science fair, right? Can I chat with you for two seconds? Sure. Okay, so just tell me your name and where you're from. I'm Piercing Flett, and I'm from Pegwis First Nation. Okay, and this is your project. So tell me a little bit about it. Well, first of all, it's a group project between my cousin Corey and I. And, uh... He is around somewhere. <laughs> yeah, he just went left for a couple minutes. Yeah, okay. he'll be back. Um, this is our project on how to synthesize a biofuel using waste vegetable oil. It's a relatively simple process that take that took us five days to complete. Yeah, an alternative fuel for the world that we live in. Yeah, it's a good project. Um, basically, what we did was we collected. Uh, 
used vegetable oil from our school cafeteria. We filtered it and then we added a couple other chemicals like uh, sodium hydroxide and uh, methyl, methyl hydroxide. No, methyl hydrate, yeah, sorry. After that, we shook the bottle. We mixed up the used vegetable oil after it was filtered and heated to 55 degrees with our sodium methyl hydroxide, which is uh, this now. And we shook that for five minutes, let it sit for overnight, come back the next day, and then uh, we have this. It's a clear fluid on the top, which is impure biodiesel, and on the bottom is a precipitate known as glycerin. And was there any, I guess, particular reason that you wanted to pursue this project? I uh, wanted to do something original from our school and something green. Just tell me quickly how you did at the Manitoba School Science Symposium. Uh, we got the best overall group project, and we got gold. And we got another award, which Manitoba I... Resources. Uh, uh, I forget the name of the award. Yeah. You did well. <laughs> you got lots of awards, so that's good. Well, congratulations, and good luck. We were also absolutely thrilled to hear from our keynote speaker, author Joseph Boyden. Joseph shared many different anecdotes about his own writing process, but he also took the audience on a very moving and insightful journey through his own battle with depression. And you are now going to hear about 10 minutes of his presentation. have to clap for that one. I actually just recently did a thing where I played this while Tanya Tagak throat sang. It was really kind of cool. Yeah, it was neat. I like to pretend I'm a musician. I'm not at all. Act two I titled, You Can't Share Your Strengths When You Can't Admit Your Weaknesses. Um, this is a much more personal uh, story I'm going to share with you. And I'm doing this because we're all educators. You know, I continue to teach uh, uh, a little bit here and there, but certainly, you know, with all of my nephews and nieces, I, I remain a teacher. And, and um, you know, I share this with, with you, this kind of painful story, uh, because I think it's important for all of us to really pay attention to those who we're in charge of, to those who, whose parents have given their greatest gift, their children, to us for hours every day. Um, to watch over and to, to, to teach. Um, so, you know, I had a, a pretty idyllic childhood when I look back on it. One of 11 kids. My father was a doctor. He was actually a World War II physician, a combat physician, very highly decorated in the Second World War. My mother was a teacher. My seven older sisters, I have seven older sisters. That's where the female voices come from, obviously. Um, they used to dress me up like a doll because I was the first boy to come along in a long time. And I, still, I, I think I'm still working through those issues, but... Uh, um, but it was, you know, it was a really great, great uh, um, raising up. And, and my, my dad, much older than my mom, uh, passed away when I was eight years old. And you know when you lose a parent, it doesn't matter what age you are. It just feels like the whole world drops out from underneath you. Um, and I had two younger brothers, so I felt, you know, at that point, I mean, you know, so I've I got to be their dad now is what I tell myself. And 
And so I teased them mercilessly. Um, but, you know, I, I was, I was kind of the brainy kid in my family. I was the reader, therefore I must be smart, you know, they all said. I'd read the Encyclope uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, the whole thing from A to Z, by the time I was 12 years old. I skipped a lot of the X parts, because it's really boring, the X parts, and they don't make any sense. But I uh, can't even pronounce them. But, uh, you know, I, 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 I cruised right through grade 8, and then I go to grade 9, I'm sent to a Catholic boys' school, and I'm like, oh, and, uh, I, and I actually realized that I suck at math. I fail grade 9 math, and this happens, and I'm just like, oh, no, I've let my whole family down. I'm supposed to be the smart one. I fail grade 9 math. i got to go to summer school. I'm like, no, I'm not going to summer school. And they're like, yeah, you're going to summer school. And so I go to summer school. But uh, during that time, you know, this was kind of one thing that kind of set me off on, on a path that, that kind of got scary. Uh, you mentioned running and getting into trouble with the law um, earlier. I started getting trouble in the, with the law. I was running with bad gang, people doing a lot of drugs and stuff like that. I, I got into the punk rock scene. I had a foot-tall mohawk for a long time, and, and uh, I looked ridiculous, but it was great. Uh, but I, was, I started running with this really, really kind of scary gang, and, and you know, I had been the captain of the football team at one point. I was a good lacrosse player. I let all that go, and I, I was really sad, and I, and I didn't know how to express it, and I thought I, it was normal. I thought it was completely normal the way I was feeling. Uh, but this sadness I didn't realize was actually a severe depression that I was suffering. Um, and, and I'm going to read a story that, uh, where things went too far for me, um, where things uh, um, kind of got out of control. It's called Walk to Morning. The first time I died was on October 31st, 1982, at approximately 11.37 p.m., Halloween, my birthday night. I was 16. I'd been to a party but left at its peak with the girl I was dating in order to walk her home. We were dressed as punk rockers. I wanted to be a real one, but that would take another year of learning and sometimes living on the streets. I remember the night was cold. I shivered in my leather jacket. The girl I was dating had had some drinks and I thought she was acting more drunk than she really was, saying nonsensical things to me and being mean. I was head over heels for this girl, even though some of my friends said she didn't deserve me. Didn't deserve me? Ha, huh. I thought I was the one who didn't deserve anything. For over a year, I'd been wandering through a place that I didn't know how to describe and didn't realize it was certainly not normal, whatever normal is to a young teen. The pain I felt pulse through me had become so intense that in the last year, I'd taken to cutting my arms open with knives to try to release that pain from my body. When we made it to my girlfriend's front door, I leaned toward her and tried to kiss her. She turned her head away and in a suddenly sober and serious tone told me she was breaking up with me. Then she walked inside. I remember this, the streetlights above me in this absurdly quiet residential neighborhood seeming so white like a row of tidal moons, the air not feeling cold anymore even though my nose ran with snot. I remember being pulled toward the noise of a car speeding by on the wider four-lane avenue a few streets away and of that strange realization I was walking away from home not towards it, not a single person in sight. I felt like I was floating, even as I felt I was going under. I'd made a firm decision for once, and just below that I knew I was no longer in control. And then I was standing on the curb, staring out at the four-lane road, the taillights of a couple passing cars leaving red trails in my eyes, the headlights of one approaching. I timed it as best I could, timed it so that there was no way the car could stop or swerve. And as the headlights of that car loomed up and swallowed me, I dove. 
I threw myself in front of it. And in that millisecond before I hit concrete and the car crushed me, I realized that this had nothing to do with some girl or some breakup. All I knew was that I had just become too scared to live. This is all of the night that I recall. Later I was told this, that when the paramedics arrived, they found me lodged under the car of an older woman who was near hysteria. Her front right wheel had run over my chest, but my leather jacket had snagged on the undercarriage, preventing the rear right tire from further crushing me. As I was transported to the hospital, my heart stopped and all vital signs were lost a number of times. First death became many little ones. Emergency surgery found too many injuries to list now, but here are a few. Major head trauma, lacerated liver and spleen, collapsed and punctured lungs, massive internal bleeding, a splintered rib cage, and yet for some reason no doctor at the scene dared imagine I survived. I do have a body littered with reminders, again too many to list, but here are a few. A thick and angry red jagged line running from my upper sternum to my groin, numerous large white scars on my skull, and the strangest a little, literal tire track that runs the left side of my back. Before you begin to think that I'm in the least bit proud of any of it, please hear this. Until recently, only my immediate family and a handful of friends knew this story. I decided to tell this story to you, strangers, because of a small, mostly First Nations community, hundreds of kilometers north of Toronto, a place dear to my heart, a place where I lived. This place continues to drive my writing imagination. It's a town of maybe 2,500 souls, and it's where eight young Indian people have taken their lives not so long ago. A few of them are children of friends of mine. And despite First Nations children taking their own lives in far greater numbers than any other youth in this country or on this globe, this is not a story only about our Native children. This is a story about unbearable pain that crosses race and age and gender, pain that none of us wishes to talk about, but we have to. This is about all of our children. This is about us. Here's what I need to say to those who might be in the place I once was. I made a great mistake in attempting to do what I did. I was very, very wrong. The act is wrong. Not because of some belief that you will burn in hell. What happens when you are gone happens when you are gone. It's what happens to the ones who are left. The people who you love and who love you. They are ruined for the rest of their lives. There is never any real healing, just a horrible, jagged, and inflamed scar that marks the damage. But I'm not telling you this most intimate mistake of my life in order to lecture. I do think about it once in a while still, and even though it occurred so long ago, it never feels very far away. I sometimes catch myself thinking, what if I'd managed it? What if I'd died? Just look at what I would have missed. And it isn't even the big stuff, the grand stuff that comes to mind. It's always the little moments that catch me off guard. The weight of my wife's foot on my own under the covers at night. The puppy smell of our dog. Feeling the tug of the fishing rod when the pickerel strikes my lure. Arguing with my teenage son about finding a job. It's these moments that make me thankful for my failure that night of my 16th birthday. That's when I give deep thanks that I failed. I tell this story in the hope of reaching someone out there, even one person who is suffering the pain I speak of. If you hear this, Talk. Speak it out loud. Walk through that night if you need to. Walk away from the road. Walk to morning. Allow this pain to be exposed to sunlight instead. And again, I share this, you know, with you because we are teachers and, and I think so many of us have experienced that the horror that is, that is suicide. 
and, and, the, and the trauma that is depression or PTSD or, or anxiety disorder. There's so many labels out there now for things. But as educators, as, as teachers, as, as, as people who are put in charge of, 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 of the best that we can do for our young ones, we have to pay attention to our gut. I think all of us know in our gut when somebody around us is not doing too well or might be hurting. But we ignore that because it's scary, it's frightening to have to say to somebody, are you doing all right? Do you need to talk? If you don't want to talk to me, maybe you've got a best friend you can talk to. You know, I'm not, I'm not, and I'm not just talking about like the severity of suicide. I'm talking about kids who might be suffering from anxiety disorders or whatever the labels are these days. But you know, the, the, the idea that, that we've stigmatized what is labeled mental illness, I think, is, 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 is wrong. It's, I think it's a tragic way to treat it. Mental illness should be considered like a physical illness. You know, I might have a cold or a flu, I'm physically ill. You're not judged for that. I, I, I suffer depression, you're judged for that. You know what I mean? And I think that's, that's we have to change that thinking, that outlook. Um, and, and, and so I urge you, by sharing that story with you today, to, to listen to your gut when you know someone around you, student or friend or not, you know, or family member. When you, your gut tells you, it's very hard, it's very difficult to reach out and you know, say to the person, you okay? And it's going to be even more difficult for that person to reach back and say, uh, no, I'm not. Um, but you know it, and trust your gut when you're around your students, especially. And with that, on Friday afternoon, the 17th annual Lighting the Fire Education Conference was complete. We'd like to extend a huge thank you, miigwech, and ekose to everyone who participated and presented. On our next episode, we will be talking with Kevin Kipling, who is the Suicide Prevention Liaison Officer here at MFNERC. We will be talking about the very difficult but important issue of youth suicide and the work that Kevin is doing with schools around this issue. And that also wraps up this edition of Thunder Radio. I'm Kim Kekigamik, and I want to thank you for listening.